You're listening to The Permanent Things, a spirited journey into the great books and big ideas that have shaped the Western world. I'm Ben Myers, a professor in the Western Civilization Sequence, part of the core curriculum at Oklahoma Baptist University. American families have become increasingly discontent with the institutional paradigm that dominates contemporary K-12 education. More and more of us are looking at the utilitarian ethos and materialist focus of our schools and asking, what about wonder? What about truth, goodness, and beauty? Classical education is growing rapidly, with both Christian and secular, private and charter classical schools cropping up around the country. These schools emphasize education as the formation of a whole person, rather than just an accumulation of information. They insist that learning can be simultaneously rigorous and pleasurable, a thing to be cherished rather than merely endured. They read the great books of the Western world and dare to enjoy them. In this episode, part two of a two-part series on classical education, I talk with Father Nathan Carr, headmaster of the Academy of Classical Christian Studies, located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, in one of my very favorite classical Christian schools. Father Carr, welcome to The Permanent Things. Thank you for having me. It's a joy. Before we get started uh, with some questions about classical education in the academy, why don't you tell us um, about your own journey with the great books? How did you fall in love with big books with big ideas? Uh, yeah. I was, uh, so it all begins with actually, actually Oklahoma Baptist University. Um, following graduation, uh, high school graduation, which had some decent books. I don't know that it had all the great books. Um, I wound up as a biology undergrad at, at OBU, and um, as uh, as you only know too well, Professor, by your sophomore year, you're looking at this um, this this class, these twelve hours of Western Civ that I had little to no idea how transformative these would be, not only to my vocation as a future minister, um, which I think I had already some uh, some dawning uh, realization already of that possibility as future, but certainly none whatsoever about being a headmaster of a school. So, which is to say, I, I very much fell in love with the, the tradition at, at OBU. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's great. I could. I- <laughs> Couldn't have asked for a better answer. Uh, that's 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 what we hope happens every time, and uh, it's what it's, it's what I, I mean. Surely, not all our graduates are going to become the headmasters of a classical school, right? But uh, nor, you know, nor did I aspire to do <laughs> right, so. Yeah. But, yeah, but if enough. they if they did, there are increasing number of schools where they could work. What do you think is fueling this this rapid growth of classical education? Yeah, we. Uh, we think about this quite a lot. It's especially an interesting question, uh, given that most parents right now that are enrolling children in schools, whatever this, you know, whatever school they may choose, are millennials. Uh, millennials are now parents, and so it's, a, it's an especially interesting um, question. Um, but I would say some things that we have seen. Uh, one of the 
Uh, let's start with some of the elements that perhaps are not specific to the classics, maybe. So we do offer a rich, an incredibly rich relational network of deep Christian discipleship, which the classics only enhance in every way. And it would appear that uh, as we've polled, we have, we have, we have data on this, but um, as we've surveyed parents, really trying to get at the heart of what's moving the, their hearts. And it would seem that um, as Christian parents feel that they're a little bit on the defensive, maybe um, culturally on the defensive, the, the toolbox has fewer tools with which to work on shaping the soul and the affections of a child. They're looking for deeply enriching, permanent ideas. Um, and we end up being, again, we've sort of reskinned the medieval university, so to speak, in something brand new. Uh, and we, we realize that there's, 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 um, it's not a total reprint. Um, but nevertheless, they seem very drawn to that. And there, there are other factors as well, but I would say that's these rich relational communities in which permanent tools are offered um, to do deep soul work with children during those handful of years that you have your children right there with you in your home. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. So do you think it's then part of the phenomenon is that some of the tendencies of our, our current culture toward a, a superficial life right where you can skate across that leave that that leaves people hungry for meaning for purpose in their education don't just tell me what i need to learn to pass this test tell me what what's here for me as a human being that's exactly right yes we novelty is the is the lie maybe it's uh, it's the shriveled wineskin of a failed imagination is what novelty is. And because we're a culture of novelty, um, it's really hard to think outside of that. Uh, this may in fact be, I, you know, I mentioned millennial, it may be in fact what attracts sort of this searching, uh, you know, millennial in perpetual existential crisis. What does it all mean? Um, Maybe that is uh, the attraction, but um, to, to something like classical, which is. Um, but nevertheless, yes, we we offer. I pray, I hope, by God's grace, a vision as as wide as Christendom, you know, as deep as the Trinitarian formula, you know, as, as expansive as the creeds and of Holy Scripture, so to speak, um, so that wh whatever else may be um, vying for your attention, novel or otherwise, you at least have this, and your, children's, your children can rest, they can flourish as human beings, as we, yeah. Um, so. That leads me to my next question, because in the, in the classical... Um education movement, if we, we can call it that, uh, reference is often made to, to what we sometimes call the three transcendentals, right? Truth, goodness, and beauty uh, as, as things that point us toward, toward God and that are at the core of the educational 
enterprise. So in the Christian context, what are we talking about when we talk about truth, goodness, and beauty? Of course, yeah. Yeah, so yes, those on the one hand are yeah, sort of Plato 101, but um but but the the same yeah, the same sort of language even to to sort of cite uh, Holy Scripture itself. So in Philippians 4, Paul makes appeal to more or less the same three. It's a, it's a more comprehensive list, in fact. And he takes it a step further. Um, but never, nevertheless, whatsoever things are true, right, and lovely, of good report, um, think upon these things, uh, says Paul. Our chief commitment of course is 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 in the 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 full with the incarnation and with Jesus you have the full reconciliation of things transcendental perhaps spiritual those things spiritual nature and those things physical those things earthly those things that are more um, imminent and dynamic uh, so with Christ as the perfect and premier and exemplary um, and full reconciliation of those two realities, which are realities, right, that a human being faces every day. These little children, they're very eminent beings, and yet they're very transcendental beings. And so if we can present Christ as the, the full embodiment of that, there's a few councils about that stuff, uh, and then let it play out in... Um, See, which, okay, here's, here's one application beyond just Holy Scripture. What that leaves for you is that whatever may be true, good, and beautiful, it is not limited to uh, mere biblical citation. Uh, or, or it is limited to biblical citation so long as you allow biblical citation to refer to everything in the created order. That all that God has done and all that he has made is fully covered. So, so every truth, in fact, in the end, properly belongs to God and is somewhere in his great and grand and glorious economy. And so we just lay claim to everything as if it was ours to begin with, right? Lay whole languages. We go like, oh, yeah, Greek was ours all along. That's not true. But we, we certainly pretend like it is. So anyway. Yeah, Maybe that's helpful. But. That that is very helpful. Yeah, I I love that that reference to Philippians four eight. So I always tell students in my intro to, to liberal arts that it's you know, whatever things are true, whatever things are noteworthy, whatever things are lovely, not just whatever, right? But but our culture tends to tends toward the shrug, and what I what I love about classical education is it, in some ways I think it, it informing the whole student it makes the student sort of shrug proof uh, by claiming all those things you're talking about that's right that's very good yeah if if uh, yeah if shrugging is the outward expression of indifference even cynicism which are sort of two byproducts of of mental acedia you know just this total uh yeah i like i actually like your word whatever the national motto, whatever. That is unhelpful um, to soul formation. I feel like people m maybe grow to realize that m over time. Anyway, that's really good. Yeah. 
So you, you mentioned earlier the, the medieval university as a model. So in, in what ways does the classical curriculum today draw on the traditions and practices of the medieval university? That's, yes, very good. I, so first, let it be known that we are but a version of classical education. We are, in fact, not the purest version. We have never attempted to win the Purity Award. We've not tried to outclass uh, outclass the classicist in any way. However, we, we do feel like it's a pretty... Um, it is as an, an, as an honest attempt as could be made at... Um, at modifying that curriculum to a modern audience as as I think you'll find. So let me, there's probably two or three ways here. One is in content. One is sort of in category uh, or maybe structure. And then one is in how content is, is, is organized. In fact, maybe let's start with structure. So structurally we take well, I suppose this is ancient, actually, not necessarily medieval. We take the, the, the seven liberal arts, we try to give them a, a, certain, um, uh, a certain dignity within the overall structure. And so, with, along with uh, uh, the great classicist Dorothy Sayers, we take the, the language arts, um, sometimes called the logical arts of grammar, logic, and rhetoric, uh, with her, we see their correspondence very roughly, not in totality. We realize these are content subject areas. But nevertheless, that the content subject areas seem to correspond nicely with um, how a child grows in wisdom and knowledge uh, and in favor with God and with man. And so those are um, appropriated in, in whatever way. But we also give those, uh, so, so there's a grammar stage, there's a logic stage, there's a, there's a stage of rhetoric, but we also teach the content of those subjects as would have been done in the medieval university. Now we teach a version of rhetoric that uh, would certainly include the likes of uh, Cicero and Quintilian and the greats, uh, though, though um, we also maybe factor in some of the wisdom tradition of the Holy Scriptures that may or may not be part of every classicist experience back in the day. And then, of course, you, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving aside right now the quadrivium. It's not part of our formal structuring of the school, but content-wise, it makes it in. Now, that, again, that's, that's probably actually more ancient than medieval. Uh, the medievalists, so, let me, so Hugh of St. Victor seems to kind of riff and go in several ways with this. In fact, there's this great book out right now that brings all this back up. Uh, uh, came out of Baylor, let me think, Restoring the Soul of the University? I can't recommend it enough. I'll put the link to that in our show notes. Oh, it's just brilliant. But um, within it, so Hugh uh, seems to, uh, he, he'll take uh, something like grammar and logic, he'll put it in the logical arts, right? And then he'll have the theoretical arts where you get things like theology and philosophy. We love that. And, and structure a lot of our stuff accordingly. You'll have the excuse me, the practical arts, something like ethics. Uh, in fact, I think some people even call them the ethical arts. 
um, or something like applied arts, right, to, to ethical scenarios and so on. Anyways, he's, so he takes the seven core liberal arts and then has all these subcategories. We just find um, pure categories, maybe. We love all of that as well and try to incorporate in different ways that probably spills over the boundaries of this podcast but all of that so you, you again you just take so you take some of the content we read 130 major western classics in their entirety a handful of which we'll even attempt in latin so our kids do study latin they take six years of latin and um but then we try to get the right categories uh, that's a gift of the medieval university is getting good categories uh, you know moderns don't have great categories we'll take a single category something like identity politics we'll make it the only category and we'll flatten the earth with it right the medieval they have all these categories they would be happy to give you that category but it needs to be one of many right and i love that about so anyway i don't i don't know if that's helpful but that's very helpful okay. thank you uh, um so you mentioned uh, uh the language study uh and latin um and it, it seems to me looking at what we today call classical education, you can see in some of the, the, the emphasis on, on transcendental values, you can see that Augustinian and Platonic influence. And you just talked about the, the trivium and the quadrivium. Um, but one also thinks of the humanist education, particularly the Christian humanist education of the Renaissance associated with somebody like Erasmus as well. So is there, is there a, a 15th and 16th century influence on the, the classical model as well? Yes. So to the, to, to the degree that the, uh, the Renaissance and the return to deeply, deeply human things, um, a, a, a move away from mere praxis and a re-emphasis of the affect. So maybe that's, there's a lot to be said on, on numerous fronts there, but you know, our mission, for example, this mission is not necessarily <laughs> falling out of the pages of Erasmus, but <laughs> nevertheless, it's, um, we as a school partner with parents to shape students' affections for truth, goodness, and beauty. So with the affect is the return, and I, th I think the purest return to um, humanism because the way that the mind will follow the well-shaped heart. And that does not discount it, it, that can often sound like it's discounting key features of learning, which it's not. The habitual is still there. In fact, uh, habit may be the chief bridesmaid of affections, quite honestly. It doesn't sound that way. When you, when you say affections, you just think, oh, I'm going to follow my heart. It's not exactly what we mean. Um, because the heart is being pulled by at least two horses, so to speak, um, the, that of the mind and the will. So we're, we're, we're happy to, to yeah, and ride those horses all day long. But in the end, we realize that the heart alone will carry, which I think is the, 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 the prize of the humanist, the heart to the heights 
of of contemplation and of meditation of all the contemplative arts that come we we so again i, I said earlier uh, maybe i can end with this as far as this question is concerned but I'm, I'm constantly trying to rescan everything so i could i could certainly use um uh, uh things like meditation contemplation the five uh sort of um modes of reflection even from hugh of saint victor right we call it the way we reskin it at the academy we call it unhurried wonder man that looks great a little marketing slogan what we mean has lots of humanist import what we say is it's unhurried wonder that's what a child needs anyway yeah which which i think uh, a parent responds to almost in intuitively right of course that's what that's what my child means and and it's fascinating that how accessible that is on the one hand, and on the other hand, how what you've just talked about really sort of unites Aristotelian virtue ethics of habit with Platonic ideas of of the ideal, the transcendent, um, which uh, does resonate very well with well with the medieval university ideals and sort of what Dante does in the Divine Comedy in a way, but also. Um, that humanist project of shaping a person as 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 what education is all about, right? Not just stamping a, a, a degree on someone and saying qualified, right? But but that formation aspect, right? That's right. Yeah, I once found a. Uh, let me think about this. I think it was a citation from a a sermon of Saint John Chrysostom in which he says, "We do not need more." qualified citizens maybe the word was qualified but rather we need more virtuous citizens um and yeah. which seems to be resonant with what you're well with what we're both describing whole persons make remarkable and very qualified uh businessmen and women yes and and fathers and mothers and best friends that's right. Yeah. So that, in some ways, brings me to my next question, which I think you've already started to answer. But um, what do you see as the disposition the, of, um, of the graduate of a, a classical academy, um, the ideal sort of disposition that you're aiming for? Yeah, so our, our, our disposition as a school, though... Well, our, our disposition as a school for our graduates, though inclusive of, inclusive in every way of the university, we prize the university, is in fact not limited to uh, the university, um, not because of doubts we have about the university, but simply so that we we place the target of our aim in the right place. So there's something of a kingdom-oriented um, disposition that actually gives good and proper placement to the university for those um, so-called in our graduating classes, which is in well over 90% of them, uh, though some absolutely feel called to um, uh, trade schools, gap years, other very enriching opportunities. Um, and we entrust them, of course, to the Holy Spirit in those times of discernment. But nevertheless, our graduates, we have four points that we've made that, that A, they, they humbly recognize their place in Christ's story. 
B, they expectantly pursue and cherish all that is true, good, and beautiful uh, beyond whatever, you know, date of graduation uh, may be. Well, do you, you now have your degree and all that's true, good, and beautiful. <laughs> right. Have a nice, right? They, expect, yeah, they expectantly pursue that their lifelong. They graciously love their neighbor, especially the most broken and marginalized. And finally, that they joyfully cultivate and embody a cruciform vision of all of life. The, the last one being perhaps the most important, this cruciform vision. I spoke of that earlier. But nevertheless, there's the disposition. The disposition is one of gift. If, if, if a cross stands at the center of history as um, the most... Um, the, 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 um, the most important demarcation of eternity's full intersection with, uh, with history, that in fact all, suddenly everything matters, every single thing matters, everything matters. And so if you can cultivate and then embody, so it's a, it's a place of being, it's, it's, it's a place of gift giving and gift receiving, uh, because the cross, in fact, is is gift. All is now gift, and therefore, even education. So, for example, education is no longer transactional. I do not trade money for dirty pieces of paper to put on my wall that say things like BS or MA. Uh, as important as those those uh, uh, as important as those things can be. We love being qualified for things that we do, but we want to make sure that those qualifications are in perfect service of something far, far greater. Uh, uh, which, again, um, my, my, my only point being, education is no longer transactional. It's pure gift giving, which means it's something like a, a feast. That reminds me of uh, what, how James Shaw, um, priest and, and writer on the liberal arts, describes uh, education, he says, it's it's your invitation to the adventure of being, right? Finding out all the things that are, right? Because God is, um, and and that that's uh, that's so much more exciting than how education is normally portrayed in, in our culture. So, how does a classical educator then uh, encourage uh, the pupils to to embrace rather than merely endure an education? Oh yes, <laughs> that's funny. There was even one point where we uh, were we were re we were doing a branding campaign. This you know probably ten years ago. Who are we? How do we capture that in sound bites? You know the whole the whole deal. And someone had you know gotten so far as to have a sign. There's a mock up. This is just an example, right? We're we're, we're still we haven't rolled the we haven't rolled the program yet. We haven't we haven't rebranded the website quite yet. But it said enduring education, <laughs> which we intend to speak to the permanent things. And as soon as that thing was on a marketing sign, we thought, yeah, I don't know if that's really capturing where we're at. <laughs> you endure. Great lesson on levels of reading. But <laughs> exactly, that's right. So this is. Uh, Maybe I have two or three different answers here. So the, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play my developmental stages card here. And I'm going to play my dad hat. You know, as, as I, I, um, I, I did write, I did in fact write a thesis on education. Um, but man, the, uh, 
the school of parenting might be every bit as important at this point as uh, as that thesis I wrote for my for for my master's. But nevertheless, um, with young children. Um, we have some of the most prized professionals in town teaching these grammar years. Some, you know, it sometimes are called the elementary years. And their ability to incite um, pure joy, right? Joy, as Chesterton says, is the huge publicity of the pagan, or so they think. Um, and. Uh, the large secret of the Christian. Uh, I, I may have not gotten that quote exactly right, but nevertheless, I always think about that. I always think of Chesterton's sort of opening line. I think that's an orthodoxy where he says, it's the gigantic, there it is, the gigantic secret of the Christian. So there, so with, so, so maybe joy is the answer for all three of these stages. The way that that joy shows up in each particular devel deve uh, developmental stage of a child is different. You know, from my kindergartner, if you can uh, bring his heart and his little body and his little mind into some sort of playful concert with something like catechism and put it to music um, and march him around, he absolutely is as dynamically involved with theology as my brightest moment in the pulpit. It's You've brought all of the predispositions of childhood naturally to bear upon a moment of theological reflection. And they love it and they find joy in it. That's going to look different for my 13-year-old son. It's going to look different for my 16-year-old daughter. Right? It's middle school, high school, what we call dialectic and rhetoric. But maybe joy, in fact, is the gigantic secret in each one. And we, as we just often say, cut with the grain. So if a child at age 13 is predisposed to argue, don't sit on that. Find a way. If their joy by nature is to argue because they are in a moment of differentiation. That's just where their mind is. They are differentiating. They're finally figuring out the other, uh, so to speak, in, 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 in the any given situation in which they find themselves, whether it's academic, whether it's mom and dad. They are differentiating. Differentiation um, in, it, it necessarily entails um, Dispute, disputatio. So allow the moment of disputatio to bring you um, to a place of joy. Spar with them a bit. Set aside the the whatever you as a parent feel like is an attack upon the uh, you know. Yeah, the, the official parenting authority that Paul gave you in Ephesians, after all. Set that aside and let them return to it and find joy in the process. So that's, a, anyway, and there, there's more to be said, but I'd say maybe that, that's a helpful way. Yeah, I, I, I love that because, uh, in effect, what you're saying is, um, look, it's, it's, it's not the educator's job to sort of gin up joy out of nothing, right? It's, it's there and just op open the door. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah, and it, yeah, absolutely. And then, and yeah, so it's, it's just complete the sort of 
thought here. High school, maybe even uh, those college years as well. But as soon as they are um, adulting, or think that they're adulting, allow them, uh, like, suspend <laughs> whatever proof you might have otherwise and the corresponding disbelief allow them their moment to reply as if they are peers this is when the socratic conversation is both most important and maybe most um fraught you lay it on the line as a teacher when you risk. There it is. There it is. It's the greatest risk has opportunity to be to, to have the greatest payoff for the child. The moment a professor shuts up and allows the sometimes pretentious remarks of these early adulting teens, soon to be sent to the university, right, to step out. Um, engage a new topic, begin that, uh, the dispute, so to speak, that will then be followed with uh, the, the winsome summary, you hope. You risk a lot. You risk some boneheaded statements. You risk uh, a total lack of information. You risk conjecture. You risk opinion. But until you risk those things, you're not going to have the heart of a child. You simply aren't. Yeah, no, it's just tough. Oh, it's so tough. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it is a it's a, a challenging process, but but I, I love that idea of risk in the classroom, which I think in um, our sort of uh, assessment obsessed age, right, gets so often sucked out of the classroom. A, a teacher can't take a risk if you've got to hit twenty different marks that period and if you don't hit those just right the students won't be ready for the standardized tests that they're going to take in a few weeks and so um there's just no opportunity for risk and the kind of joy and discovery that can can lead to that's exactly right as the university has more and more uh, as the high school in my context has more and more had to contend with a certain um sanitized language that, that sometimes requires decontextualization, lest you trigger. Um, you, uh, one, you see anxiety go up in the classroom, quite honestly. We have the most anxiety-ridden um, classrooms around. Maybe that's a controversial thing to say, but as language becomes more sanitized, uh, and therefore risks less, there is less on the line with which to actually deal. Um, and I, there are some horrible things, horrible things, that uh, politically correct language has cleaned up. There's, a, there's some gift there. But to the degree that it now um, manages, dictates, and more or less plans every conversation in this sanitized way, um, I, why even gather around a mentor? Um, let's just let's pump this thing. Let's just start. Let's, let's just have online schools. You give sanitized lectures. I'll make sure I fill in my bubbles and send it in. Can I just get the dirty piece of paper? That's there's a, you're you're lo the, with risk comes 
um, I realize there's some high stakes there. But anyway, yeah. does that make sense? I it does know. make sense. Oh. I think I think you know you there's obviously value in thinking about am I am I speaking kindly and considerately to someone? But one hundred percent doesn't mean never have a real human conversation about real human things including suffering pain things that have gone wrong things that have gone right uh in in history and in ideas right so um there's a difference between always caring for the person you're talking to and um lying to them in, in essence which is what we're often asked to do in a sort of age of hyper carefulness that's exactly right yes let love 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 win the day in every conversation um but with love uh, the love of a marriage the love that we experience inside of the one church of jesus christ even the the love that we at some level experience with uh, with a national identity as we live life together with our neighbors and so on. All, every conceivable you know, layer or concentric, concentric circle of love. Let love win the day. But with each of those comes hard conversations. And I, anyway, I just don't want the full sanitization of language to, to rob us of what the enriching aspects of love that are always on the other side of suffering and pain, which is your point. I love that. So well done. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about the Academy of Classical Christian Studies here in Aaron OKC? Give us the sort of uh, facts on who you are and uh, how you were established. Oh, yeah, of course. So we are a three-campus um, uh, Christian School of Classics serving 612 students from 16 different towns and cities across Oklahoma. 86 churches represented. We're sort of an inter-trans-denominational framework. Uh, and uh, those are from some 380 families, uh, I believe. So we have so we have, so, so, uh, we have two K-8 feeders. One is in Moore, Oklahoma. One is in Northeast Oklahoma City, near Edmond. And those both uh, uh, feed into a downtown, midtown high school, where, in fact, we sit today, which is ninth grade through 12th grade. So it's a complicated and very layered school, and it reaches a broad audience. We have five families driving from Stillwater, some of them every day. We have two or three families from Shawnee driving every single day. Noble brings his kids up, actually. There he, that's right, of course. Yeah, his wife has absolutely transformed math education here. Just remarkable. Love those nobles. And um, uh, as far flying, as, well, in fact, noble as a town, uh, we have people driving from, uh, the, anyway, they're, they're driving from all over. And uh, so we have about 100 uh, staff and faculty members uh, serving in various ways. We are full accredited through advanced ed, um, uh, which we are, and then we have um, dual enrollment courses and, and, and the like. Now, we, uh, uh, some other facts that may be of interest, we have two models. So part of our history is that we started as two separate schools. I was leading a school called Providence Hall. It was a five-day traditional model. 
uh, and it was nearer to the Edmund, uh, sort of the north side of Oklahoma City. And then there was in Norman a, a, a separate school known as Veritas Classical Academy, which was a blended university model style school, so to speak. And they met two and uh, two days a week. Um, we came together more or less to form. A, a much larger high school. I had dabbled with a high school. They had dabbled even more with a high school. We thought, let's do it right. And um, let's do a district model. So we're Oklahoma's only fully accredited private school district, which means I'm a, I guess I'm a superintendent. I don't know. I go with headmaster. <laughs> and um, which means that you have a two-day accredited model, K through five, or a five-day accredited model, K through five. Then, 6th through 8th grade, you have a three-day accredited model. We, 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 you get one more day in our blended model, or five-day. And then our high school is five-day only. So layer all of that in. That gives um, an accredited homeschooling-assisted model to parents uh, that sets right alongside with the exact same blueprint, in fact, as the five days. But that way, homeschool dad, homeschool mom, live in tutor, a hundred ways of knocking this out, but I can do it. So anyway, there's a little bit about it. We're one of the largest classical schools in the nation, uh, oddly enough, right here in the Midwest. Who knows, buddy? Uh, anyway. <laughs> That's great. Um, how can... Uh can uh, the few universities around that that still value uh, the liberal arts and uh, deep learning what can we do to assist the classical education movement what can we do to help you guys out well the first thing you can do is um, resist the uh, overwhelming uh, pressure this is this is you know Nate Carr's stump speech here to OBU, but I, 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 I resist the overwhelming pressure to release a core curriculum, maintain you, the the uni and university. There is a unified core curriculum. The fact that I sat in Western Civ with uh, ministry majors, one of whom is now my board chairman, ministry majors, one of whom was my previous assistant head of school, Dr. Casey Shutt, Tony Capselli was his board chairman, uh, uh, graduates of um, OSSM sat in my class, Todd Wadle, who later became a rhetoric and composition uh, master prepared professor that then came back as a principal. Um, I was there as a biology undergrad, uh, uh, unlikely as that may seem, now headed to seminary. But what you have, right, uh, r across the whole spectrum of, of your degree offerings at OBU sits one unified class and they're unified around the very things that unify our culture, our national understanding. Uh, I resist the temptation to dispose with that in pursuit of uh, the fading promise of the multiversity. That'd be the first thing. It shaped 
I, I have more OBU grads, I think, than anything else at the academy working for me. And they are flourishing. And I can't believe we all started a school together. It's so weird. <laughs> we none of us set out to do that. And yet here we are. And they, anyway, there's more. Secondly, uh, we need your talent and your time to come and to speak into the life of our school. Uh, so we would love to host you. Uh, we've hosted, in fact, yeah, uh, Alan Noble spoke at our Lyceum project a year ago. Um, and, and, and those opportunities and those joint ventures only need to increase. And I don't even have, I can't even imagine what all of those are. Um, and then we should probably think of deeper ways to work together to the degree that I can become a pipeline for places like OBU that have preserved all that's true and good and beautiful. Um, I need to preserve that. I don't know every way that I can do that, but no, that's great. I say amen to all three of those, okay, okay. those things. That's uh, that's, that's wonderful. Um, final question. Just if, if you want to recommend a book to our readers, uh, would you, what would you recommend? Ooh, let me think about that. I, I want it to be classical and Christian. Um, you know, let's start with uh, the book whose impact is most noted in my formation. And it's kind of a, it's a wonky book, I'll admit that, um, in that it's a dissertation, right? Dissertations always read like a dissertation. Now this one is a pretty slick dissertation. It's called Norms and Nobility by David Hicks. It's more or less the, the cornerstone of the movement, movement in which I find myself. And there's this chapter, and I, of course I forget the, the, the exact name of the chapter at this moment here, but I, um, it's about how to make a Christian education in classics normative. Maybe it's even like a democratic approach to classical. Moving, moving this idea of a classical education out of the elitist circles of, you know, of, 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 of Aristotle personally, you know, teaching Alexander the Great and making sure that this is available to the everyman. So he was the first guy to say it and to say it in quite that way. He has many, many other things to say. And it's just, I remember reading that chapter. I remember reading that chapter 14 years ago when we started these schools and thinking, how do we do that? How do we scholarship to the degree that any child who wants education can and can flourish? And uh, so I would recommend that. And um, yeah, let's, let's leave it there. Yeah. Great. That's a great recommendation. Thank you for your time and for your insight. Hey, you're welcome. Thank you very much, Professor. God bless you. God bless OBU.